I'm so glad you're here. It's so good to meet so many people. I met a lady uh, this morning that I graduated Lee High School with. She actually said she remembered me from being in the corral group. <laughs> Which is not true, but I did not argue with her. But I am joining the worship team, so welcome me in, okay? So we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, let, let's do a little audience participation. How many of you have ever tickled somebody? Raise your hand. Go ahead and confess it, all right? How many of you have ever been tickled? How many of you ever been tickled too long? Where somebody just kept on tickling you and you were just miserable? And, and the worst thing about it, I see some of you tearing up. I mean, the worst thing about it is it actually becomes painful. And what's really awful is when somebody's sort of a bully and they're bigger than you and you, you can't get up. You've been there before, that's miserable. Now, what do you finally do? You finally say, if it's a tickle contest, I give. I give up. And then if they still won't let you up, you begin to ask people for help. Somebody get this person off of me because, guys, you may not recognize this, but tickling can actually be dangerous. It is actually possible to be tickled to death, to laugh yourself into a cardiac arrest, okay? And so as we go through that and you see what they do or what we do, You've just heard the three first steps of the 12 steps. You finally recognize that you are powerless. You need someone else to get this bully off you that's dominating your life. And you finally call out to somebody for help. So this morning, we're going to look at a few stories. We're going to start in Luke chapter 23, an incredible story about a guy that was at the end of his rope, in the end of his life, the end of Jesus' life, who meets Jesus. We love this story. Look at Luke chapter 23. Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to a place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Listen to me, friends. This was a deliberate attempt by the Jewish authorities to embarrass Jesus. Not only are we going to crucify you, but we're going to put you up there in the company of common criminals. They didn't recognize That's exactly where Jesus wanted to be. You find that in the next line. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, if you read Matthew's rendition of this, at the beginning, both of these thieves begin to, it says this very vivid word, they begin to hurl abuses at Jesus. But then something happens. One of the guys gets Jesus. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there, the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. One guy's making fun of him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus and had an audacious request. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus has a wonderful answer. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, this man met Jesus at the most unexpected place. This is a hill so ugly, it was called a skull. So smelly, it was a trash dump. So scary, it was death row. And this man at the lowest point of his life, 
When there's nothing he can plead for himself, there's no defense, no denial, no covering up, no chance except Jesus finally says those three things. I'm powerless. I need power. And Jesus, you could do something about it. So write these things down if you're taking notes this morning. Giving up is the first step to finding salvation. Now, we're, we're beginning a study of the 12 steps. What I've learned is you can divide these 12 steps into four major categories. Number one is giving up. Number two is cleaning up. Number three is making up. And number four is growing up. And today we go to, to clean up. We go to give up, excuse me. And that's the first step of being saved. Now, don't get intimidated by a religious word of salvation. It's a simple old word. It simply means to be made whole, that your life's got holes in it. You've got emptiness in your life. That's what salvation's all about. And I think God gets a chuckle, despite the fact we've argued it for 2,000 years, that there is an ex-con walking the streets of gold. And what's that saying to you is that's possible for you and for me, no matter how far we've gone from God, no matter how last minute it is. You see, Doc, Jesus is the doctor who never lost a case. But please pay attention to this. He only takes patients who are willing to give up on themselves and come to him. You see, Jesus said it's not well people that need a doctor, at least not those who think they're well. It's sick people who need a doctor. Those are the ones I've come after. So giving up is the first step to salvation. Now, giving up is also the first step of the 12 steps. You know, we're all familiar with these incredibly powerful steps that alcoholics and drug addicts and many other addictions have used. You may know the history that this started almost 80 years ago in 1935. There was a New York City stockbroker whose life was spinning out of control. He was, he was an alcoholic. He couldn't give it up. He tried everything. He lost his job, lost his family. And finally, he met somebody named a Dr. Bob Smith from Akron, Ohio, who was a surgeon. Now, Wilson had tried everything, including LSD, to get off alcohol, but he couldn't do it. But he met this Bob Smith, who was beginning to come up with this plan, this program, to help alcoholics. And they together begin to write what we call now the 12 steps that have been used for over 80 years for millions and millions of people effectively across the world. Now, here's what's so cool to us. Where Bob Smith got the idea for the 12 steps was a small group Bible study that he was a, a part of called the First Century Christian Fellowship. For the first, the 12 steps are birth out of going back to the way the church originally was and being a place of openness and honesty and confession, not the fake place that many of us have experienced church to be. So what excites me is people begin what we call walk these steps. Biblically, we'd call it walking in the spirit, walking in the light. Now, what I'm excited about is, is we have a group here in the Landmark Church that exhibits this right in front of us. We have a group that meets on Wednesday night called RSVP, Recovery, Sponsorship, Victory, and Prayer. And, and there's probably 50, 60 people who jam in that room every week to review these 12 steps and to grow and to walk together. 
And I can look across this audience. I see David Bratton, who years ago walked into this place. The only thing he had when he got off the bus in Montgomery, Alabama, was a paper sack with everything he owned. And he sat on this front row for probably two years before he came clean. And then I look over here and I see Jason Coulter, who was in prison for selling and doing drugs. And his wife came here and prayed that when he got out, he would come and, be reco- and, and recover. And so we have all these powerful stories about how this works. But here's what I want all of us to know. I think what happens over there on Wednesday nights is probably a clearer picture of what God intended for his church than actually what we're doing right now. Because it's open, it's honest, it's confessional, it's helpful, it's prayerful. And so what I want to do is is use this incredible ministry we have in our, our midst to say, we all could use the 12 steps. They would work for everyone. That's our thing. Freedom for everyone. You see, you might be here today and no one really knows, but you're a closet alcoholic and you need to go get some help. Our number one drug addiction in our country today is you're addicted to, to pain prescription medicine. It's prescribed, so you've justified it. But then many of the rest of us, we've got different symptoms, but still dangerous We might be addicted to work or video games or eating or shopping or working out or golf or pornography or sleep. Probably all of us struggle with addictions in our mind. I would call this addiction just stinking thinking, man. I just think negative things over and over. I'm just anxious over and over. I'm just critical of everybody around me over and over. I've just got a mind that thinks the worst that's going to happen doesn't walk by faith. And it's, we might label that as addiction, but it's probably the most dangerous addiction. So giving up is the first step of the 12 steps. Giving up is also the first step out of the death spiral. You say, that sounds awfully dramatic, buddy. I, I think it actually is. So let me tell you how this happens. This will give us a hand on this. Here's how addictions happen. First of all, you have a difficulty in your life. You know, we all have faced the fact that life is difficult. Our Lord Jesus said, in this world, not might, not maybe, you will have trouble. And so we have some pain that comes in our life. Maybe it's a sin issue or a sexual issue or a relational issue or a health issue or a work issue. But something has come into your life that has hurt you. Maybe it was your parents' divorce. Maybe it was your divorce. But you, you found yourself in a place of, of pain. And so what you do, instead of stopping there to really deal with it, because most of us don't even know how to deal with it, is we go into the next step, is denial. That's where addictive behavior comes from. I'm trying to take my focus off my pain. That makes sense. And so I find something that diverts me. An addiction, listen guys, can be any activity, substance, object, behavior, relationship that takes your focus off that pain. Now, here's what happens is, it might even be a good behavior, but you're not doing it for its original purpose. Maybe you become addicted to watching TV, and you just, you just spend endless hours flipping channels. Now, TV's a good thing. It's meant for entertainment. But now it's come a place where you don't have to deal with life Maybe you don't even have to deal with the things that are going on in your home. Or maybe, I mean, this addiction sounds odd to me, but I've seen it. Maybe you've got a shopping addiction. Nothing wrong with shopping. I mean, we all have to shop for food and clothes and things we need. 
But maybe your marriage is so bad, it's to have the next purchase that allows you to escape it, and so you're, you're running up incredible credit card bills. You see, the, the activity is no longer for its original purpose. It's now being used to keep you away from where you really ought to be. So maybe when you come home at night and your children are out of control, and the only way you can handle it is with a little alcohol. Or maybe you're flunking school and your diversion is just to play video games all night long. Or maybe there's tension in your marriage and you don't want to be home and so you play way too much golf. Or maybe you're lonely and you're all alone at night and the only thing that sort of fills that void is a bunch of ice cream. Or maybe your job is an absolute failure and even there you can escape it through pornography. You find a way to deny what's going on Now, here's what it leads to. The next downward step is dysfunction. You see, when you bury a problem, you bury it alive. It's going to come back to bite you. And what happens is, because of this addiction, I don't function well in life. I mean, the first step of the 12 steps is that your life has become unmanageable. And so, you're not getting things done you ought to get done. You're avoiding relationships you need to be a part of. And... You just keep doing the same thing over and over, trying to escape, and it just actually gets worse and worse for you and the people around you. And here's what it leads to. It leads to, you know, dysfunction in your family. Because in the long run, I mean, you've seen an alcoholic family where everybody, everybody plays the game. I mean, everybody wants to know what his breath is like or what her breath is like when she walks in the door because we might need to get in our rooms and lock the door. And so the dysfunction gets widespread, and there's even some of us who become enablers. We love this person. We feel so bad they're in this condition. And so we work around them so they don't even have to deal with the pain. We even begin to feel guilty and blame ourselves. You say, if I were just a better wife, my husband wouldn't be addicted to alcohol. If I'd been a better father or mother, my child wouldn't be out there in this condition. If I were a better child, my mom wouldn't fly off the handle so angry. She wouldn't be stuck on these pills. And so you begin to live in incredible dysfunction. And in the long run, it gets so bad it leads to destruction. It's out of control. And it's there. It's like the child. You ever seen a kid who gets a splinter in their hand, and you're going to take the splinter out, and they don't want you to take it out? And some of us are enablers, so we go, okay, it really would hurt, so just leave it in there. Because they would rather deal with the pain of the splinter than the pain of getting the splinter out. And if we're guilty, we'd let that happen. And then years ago, it comes back from some kind of great infection, and it begins to be destructive. And that's what happens with this. We come to a point where we have a a decision again. We, we, we come to a point when everything is so out of control that either, here's my choice, it's the same choice those two thieves on the cross had, either I can go back to denying the problem and try to push it back down one more time and up the medicine, up the drugs, up the shopping, or I can deal with it. One of those thieves on the cross just kept denying it at the last moment. The other thief, for the first time in his life, I believe, he admitted how low he was. For the first time in his life, he got his mind off himself and stood up for someone else. And he found 
salvation. He's now walking in paradise. So, giving up is that first step to get out of that death spiral. But here's even better. Giving up is the first step to the abundant life. That's what God wants for you. God wants more than for you just to, in your addiction, look at this passage. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, the thief has come. Come on, go to the next slide if you would. The thief has come. To to go to the next slide. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what the devil's doing. And guys, all these addictions we're talking about, boy, this is one of his great ways of doing it in our culture. Now, for some of us, it's very obvious. It's like he comes as a bank robber. And so we all know it. For others of us, we hardly recognize that he comes as a petty thief. It's not as obvious, but we're all getting stolen. Our happiness, our joy, this abundant life. Now, here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Listen, listen, please listen to what I'm saying here. What God wants for you is more than you just to get over whatever you're using to cover up your pain. What God wants is more than you just getting over the addiction. He wants you to get to abundant life. In fact, the steps that we're using... In this series, we're not using the alcoholic steps. We're using the steps that are called 12 steps to to life recovery. You see, some people divide the 12 steps up into peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with others, and keeping the peace. That's what God wants for you. You see, God knows as good as it would be for you to get over your addiction, as good as it would be for you to be sober, if that's all we've got, we've just claimed a few more years. Now, don't be offended about what I'm about to say. But if you get sober, and you don't meet Jesus, and you go to hell, it's all for naught. Because let me tell you this. Your enemy doesn't care if you go to hell drunk or sober. So what we're talking about here, guys, is bigger than just getting clean. And that's why we unabashedly say to you, we believe that Jesus is the answer. So let me just give you these three steps and then tell you a couple stories. Step number one, we admitted we were powerless. Step number one, we admitted we were powerless over our problem, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's the first step. Because so many, we think, man, if I do this, if I do this, I can overcome this. I don't need to tell anybody. I don't need to go to a group. I don't need to tell the church. No, no, no. You've got to finally get there. Number two. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Help! I need help! And we know who comes to help, who can knock any bully off our back. We made a decision to turn our lives, our wills, and our lives over to the care of God. Now I want to tell two more stories, and then we will um, celebrate the love of God. First story I think I relate to maybe even more than the than the two thieves. Back in the Old Testament, there's a story about this guy named Naaman. He was a, a commander for the king of Aram. He was very powerful, very much liked for, by the king, very rich. Everything was going great in his life except one thing. He had a problem like all of us. He had leprosy. Well, there just happened to be this, this Jewish girl that was a captive there who said, if you go back to my country, they can heal you. So he thought, man, I'm desperate enough. 
He loads up all these gifts. He gets papers from the king. He goes and shows up at the king of Israel's house. And the king of Israel is exasperated and said, I'm not a healer. Only God can do that. Well, Elisha the prophet hears about it and said, Oh, come over to my house. We'll take care of it. And so he gets all of his paraphernalia, all of this big parade of stuff, goes over to give it to Elisha. Elisha doesn't even step out on his front porch. He just sends a lowly servant to tell the king to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. To tell this commander, excuse me. And you know what happened? The commander was offended. He was offended that the prophet didn't even give him personal attention. He was offended that he sent him. If you've ever been to the Jordan River, you'll be disappointed. It's a muddy, ugly place. And he goes, man, I don't need to go there. i got beautiful rivers back in my home country. And so you know what this dude does? He turns around with his leprosy and is going back home. He would rather live with his leprosy than swallow his pride. That's where many of us are. Until one of his servants did what we would call an intervention. He said, buddy, if that prophet had told you to do something great and marvelous and spectacular, you would have done it. But he asked you to do this and your pride's eating you up. And Naaman turned around and thank God he dipped in that dirty river seven times and he came up a clean man. And for many of us, I think we may be there, is we know we got a problem, but we're afraid to swallow our pride to deal with it. Now, I want, to, I want you to see a live story now. I'm, I'm asking my friends Ed and Barbara Bice to come up here on stage with me. Many of you know Ed and Barbara. They're the ones who head up this RSVP ministry that has influenced not just the people in the ministry, but impacted our church so much. And I'm just so thankful that they're willing to come up here and talk. Because I've been, I met when I first decided to start preaching this, first thing I did was meet with them. And they gave me so much insight about how this works. And I want them to be to give you some insight. So I know the first thing you guys would like to do is just sort of introduce yourselves and tell a little bit about you. Um, am I on? I am so nervous. I just want to start by saying that I'm very nervous. Um, neither one of us wanted to go first this morning, so we flipped a coin, and Ed told me that I lost. So, <laughs> so but you know, neither one of us are comfortable up here on the stage at all. In fact, after Buddy um, called us and asked us if we would be willing to speak on Friends Day, Ed and I looked at one another and said, we have got to start blocking Buddy's number. <laughs> There's godly ways around that. <laughs> but before Buddy starts asking us any questions, what we really wanted to say is that, um, you know, we are involved in, in other 12-step uh, recovery programs, but we want you to know that we are not spokespeople for the 12 steps. We are not spokespeople for any recovery group. Um, we by no means consider ourselves to be some sort of recovery gurus or anything like that. Um, we can only just share from our own hope and our own strength and experience, but we do believe in these 12 steps. We believe that they have changed our lives. We believe that they have given us hope. And we are so thankful to God for that. And we just give him all the glory for it. Ed, anything? 
I want to ask Ed this, because some of you have heard Ed's story. You can add whatever um, you need to there. But um, in Ed's addiction, there was a moment of humility in a hotel room. And, and I'd like you to tell about what led you to that and what happened in that hotel room that allowed you to do exactly what we're talking about is finally to give up. <clears throat> about 25 years ago, I was 44 years old. Barb and I had been married for 24 years, had three boys, and uh, I was uh, fighting a, an addiction battle of alcohol and drugs, and I was losing that battle. At that particular time, Barb and I was actually separated and, uh, <clears throat> because of the addiction. And, uh, I'm in this motel room. I've been there about six days, and uh, uh, let me back up and say this. Uh, a year prior to this, I'd went to treatment. I got uh, out of treatment, and uh, they guided me to AA and suggested I go to AA meetings, and I went to AA meetings, and they suggested I get a sponsor. They suggested I uh, work these steps and surrender and all, and uh, that pride would not let me. And, uh, that arrogance, and so <clears throat> I pursued on, and, and uh, ultimately, Barbara and I decided to separate and let her go on. I, I just couldn't get clean, sober, cried everything I could. I'm laying in this motel room, miserable. It's absolutely the lowest point of my life. Uh, nothing was worked. Uh, we had lost everything, and it, it just, it's, I, I cannot describe the misery, but. I was laying there in bed, it was late after midnight, and <clears throat> the alcohol wasn't working no more, the drugs wasn't working no more, but uh, I couldn't sleep, so I reached over, and normally after a, a four or five good swallows of straight liquor, you can at least calm the nerves or either pass out for a little while. Uh, so I, I reached over and got me four or five good swallows, and I laid there a minute and just flashed back, thinking, where am I at, what am I doing? And, I realized I wasn't going to keep that liquor down, so I got up and headed to the bathroom. And when I went into the bathroom, there was a long mirror there, and as I was walking down there, I saw my image. And uh, I went on in the bathroom. I was in there a couple of minutes, and when I come out of that uh, bathroom, I saw that image again, and I, and I stopped, and I turned, and I looked in the mirror in disbelief. I could not believe condition I was in, the place I was in, the circumstance. I, I don't know how I got there. It was a, I didn't get there overnight. It was years of an addiction. But, <clears throat> but I remember what I was told about. I was going to have to surrender. I was going to have to work some of these steps. You know. I, <clears throat> but I had two fears, and one of those fears was that God would not want to hear from me. And the other fear I had was if I surrendered, and he didn't answer my prayer. I sure enough was hopeless. I had no, no other way out. But at that particular time, I didn't have any other options. Uh, <clears throat> I was weeping. I fell on my knees, and, and I began to pray on that bathroom floor. And I, I cried out to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, I stayed on that floor for a long time. But I asked the Lord to remove that obsession of alcohol and drugs. And if he would do that, I made a lot of commitments to the Lord. I, I made a lot of promises to the Lord. And we, I laid on that floor for a long time that night just talking about a lot of things, about life. 
And I told the Lord, I said, one more thing. I said, I want you to ask you, Lord, to bless my wife and my family, to provide for them and protect them, and to comfort them. And I made a few more commitments and promises to God, and I laid there for a few minutes, and then I can't explain to you, I can't tell you what happened. Uh, I laid there a few minutes, and I got up, and I had just a little bit of surge of energy, and one of the commitments I'd made to me, when I got up off that bathroom floor, I'd clean that room up. I flushed everything that was in there and poured out everything else. I got me a good hot shower, and I headed in there, and I was going to crawl in that bed. And another commitment I made to him is I told him I'd start my day, and I'd end my day with him for the rest of my life if he'd keep me clean and sober. I knelt on the knelt beside that bed, and I, I thanked God for that time. There was a comfort in there I cannot explain. I crawled up in that bed, and I went to sleep, and I slept like I hadn't slept in years. And I woke up the next morning, and opened my eyes. I, I didn't have a hangover. I, 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 didn't, I didn't have a headache. I wasn't nauseated. And I, I've been drinking and drugging for six days. You just don't do that. It's just not natural. I rolled out that bed, and I got on my knees. I worked steps one, two, and three. I had my prayer. At 9 o'clock that morning, I was in an AA meeting in Chisholm. And I picked up a white chip, and I started working these programs. I went back to a 6 o'clock meeting that night. At 8 o'clock that night, I was on my knees in that motel room by that bed, thanking God for that day and for keeping me clean and sober. And that's the first day in years that I'd been clean and sober. And by the grace of God, from that day to this day, I hadn't found necessary to take a drink or a drug. You know, reflecting, and I, I just remember always that was the worst day of my life, just the worst day of my life. But reflecting back, uh, not only did I find out that's the worst day of my life, but you know, looking at mirror was the most horrible moment of my life. But five minutes later, I was on my knees talking to the Lord and surrendering my life, and it turns out it happens to be the very, one of the very best days of my life also. I know one thing Ed has taught me uh, talking to this is that these first three steps we're talking about this week and next week are the most important steps. And, and to work the steps doesn't mean you do it one time. You go back over and over like Ed does every day. But Barbara, I think you can help a lot of us who don't maybe have one of those, you know, we think traditional addictions. You've also been blessed by the 12 steps. Tell us a little bit about that. I have. I remember, you know, I read these steps long before Ed ever got clean and sober. And I remember thinking when I read them, wow, these are going to be really good for Ed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, at that time, I still had what I call that white knuckle grip on everything. You know, I was still trying to fix everything within my own power. I was trying to fix Ed and fix me and fix our marriage and fix our finances and, you know, all the, the damage that addiction can cause. So at that time, I really did not know what a blessing that these steps would turn out to be for me. You know, family members and those of us who love people in addiction and in recovery, we become very sick too. 
you know, we become um, emotionally, emotionally sick and physically sick and even spiritually sick. I mean, I know I did. And after Ed uh, got in a recovery program, not long after that, I started a family program of reco recovery. And uh, so I've worked these steps many times over the years. And I remember clearly the day that I honestly and sincerely worked steps one, two, and three. It was a, at a very desperate point in our lives. I was very hopeless. I always say it felt like I was letting out this deep, deep breath that I didn't even know I was holding. I could physically just feel myself, you know, surrendering to the Lord. I remember just crying out and saying, Lord, you know, I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this without you. You know, there's a saying that we've all heard about we're either headed into a storm in a storm or coming out of a storm, but at some point in our lives, we're all going to be in a storm. And I know that these steps over the years have helped me through many storms. And you know, I don't know, there may be some of you in here today who, like me, have that white-knuckle grip on something. You know, whether, like Betty said, it's trying to control your marriage or your finances or your health or your job or your children, or your grandchildren. You know, any of us could probably just draw that line and fill in the blank with whatever it is that we're trying so desperately to fix. And for me, these steps have helped me, you know, to release that grip. It helps me to let go and to let God. I've always told Ed that I think these steps should be a required subject in high school, and I really do. Uh, because even if you don't have addiction in your life, even if you're not struggling with anything, they are just a great way to live your life. Well, Barbara, um, we're going to make them required learning in church, okay? <laughs> and that's going to help us. I, I love hearing y'all talk, and... Uh, that, that question that Ed asked, you know, what if God doesn't answer my prayer? I mean, what, I mean, does God really want life for me? Does God want abundant life? And we're about to answer that question in a very visible, physical way by going to these tables that are scattered around this room. Because the reason you can absolutely know that God wants abundant life for you is because God gave his life for you. He's proven it. And so we're going to hear a beautiful song from some of our worship team. I just want you to let it bathe you in the love of God. And then we're going to go to tables and celebrate the love of God together. Give these guys a hand. <laughs> Praise Him. Please be seated just for a moment. I hope you leave this place in just a few minutes uh, full of hope. That, that change is possible. That's one of the things I struggle with. Can I really change? And what I love about what we're studying is it's broken down into 12 steps. You, you don't just have to leapfrog to make it to where you need to be because often, you know, something comes up. I know I need to change. I feel guilty. I say I'm in change. And then I go right back to where I was. 
I like what a writer, Lyle Schuyler, says. The most effective change is incremental. He said, we have six children, and I've said to my wife many times, one of the smartest things she ever did was bring them home one at a time. I like that, guys. And so our challenge for you today is to take one step. You see, God wants to meet you in that low place. I want to share with you Isaiah 57, verse 15, to close. And this is going to tell you two places where God dwells. Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. Number one. I live in a high and holy place, number two. But I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to receive the spirit of the lowly and to receive the heart of the contrite. My friends, God is a holy God, and yes, he does dwell in the holiest of holies in heaven. But he says, I also dwell in the lowest spot of your life. That's why he met that thief on that stinky hill outside of Jerusalem. That's why he met that commander in a dirty river called Jordan. That's why he met Ed Bice on the floor of that hotel room. Because when we finally are broken and lonely, that's where we meet God. And so today, we're going to give you an opportunity to connect with God in a special way. I've got some couples that can come sit at the end of these front pews. You'd like to, y'all go ahead and stand up and come. And if you'll just sit there, if you just want to come, talk to somebody today and let them pray with you while we sing, they're going to be available. Also, you may come, there's already people up here that are writing out what they want the church to pray for together. If you'd like to do that, please come and we'll give you a card and we'll pray specifically about your issue. Or maybe today you need to meet God in this water, in this place, because that's What happens in baptism is when you get to that place where you give up on you and you know the only thing that could save you is what Jesus has done for you. And that may be where you need to meet him today. You may be like that thief that day. You didn't come here expecting to encounter God. But today you've encountered God and you want to mark it down before you walk out of this place. So if you'd like to do that by praying with people, by the whole church praying with you or being baptized, come right on up right now while we stand together and sing.